Hey, Kibitz listeners, this is the final episode of our second season. We hope you've enjoyed it, and we'd love to hear your ideas for season three, so feel free to email us at kibitzpod at gmail.com and let us know what you'd like to hear. Our final episode this season is about death, and it features a conversation with frequent Kibitz guest, my 97-year-old Nana. A few weeks ago, my Nana was in the hospital, and I was still in London with my four-month-old daughter. My Nana knew I was returning to Los Angeles on December 1st, so the two of them could meet, but there were nights that I talked to her when she was in the hospital that I thought, I am talking to a dying woman. There is just no way that she's going to live long enough to meet my baby girl. But she did. She told me that my daughter kept her alive because she wanted to meet her so badly. And I believe her. I think it's kind of amazing how, in some cases, we can actually will ourselves to live or die when we decide the time is right. Anyway, thanks for listening, and here's our episode. Just a quick disclaimer before we begin, the views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the guests and do not reflect the opinions of the podcast's hosts or its sponsors. Also, the following podcast may not be suitable for younger listeners. Thanks. I'm not getting old. I'm getting dead. (laughs) I'm gonna live till I die. I'll take a chance flying high. Before my number's up I'm gonna fill my cup I'm gonna live I'm gonna live Until I die Uh, this was the funeral of Marsha Goldberg and Marsha and his family never joined a temple or you know, didn't do much. They were sort of nothing people. Anyway, uh, the rabbi who was officiating said, you know, I really didn't know Moshe. Does anyone in the audience want to say something about Moshe? And nobody said anything. Nobody volunteered or anything. And he said, my goodness, I'm sure one or two of you would could come up here and say something. So this guy said, I'll say something. So he comes up to the podium and he said, his brother was worse. <laughs> <laughs> that was my Nana. She just turned 97. 97. Lately, when I talk to her on the phone from London, where I've been living for most of the year, she'll often bring up the possessions she's earmarked for me to get after she's gone. I find that really difficult to think about and try to quickly move the conversation elsewhere. But I think it's my Nana's way of thinking about her own death in a positive light. What joy she'll continue to bring her family after she's gone, even if that joy comes in the way of tchotchkes. My Nana much like yours, I suspect, has a lot of tchotchkes. I've been wanting to talk to her more about death, but 
it's difficult over the phone. Usually, she just launches into more jokes about death, which is a great way of dealing with it. We did end up having an interesting conversation about dying, and that's coming up later in the episode. But is there something peculiar to Judaism that makes us think about death differently? With no real prescription for a definitive heaven or afterlife, how does that affect how we live our lives and think about death? Are Jewish rituals an effective way of dealing with grief? Are there better ways to think and talk about death with friends and family? I'm Dan Crane. And I'm Jessica Chaffin. And welcome to The Kibbutz. The podcast about Jewish ideas and culture. This episode is all about death, something we have in common with every living thing on Earth. We are all going to die. All right, well, let's talk about death, Jess. Um, how are you? How, do you believe in death? <laughs> oh, I, oh, some nervous whistling. <laughs> do I believe in death? <laughs> I think it's, it's something I think a lot about um, because it's one of the hardest things to cope with. Yeah. It's the idea, I completely understand your Nana's desire to talk about it, and I understand your desire to not want to think about it. Yeah. Well, it's funny because she doesn't, it's not like she wants to talk about dying. She just, she's like, well, I figured out, you know, you're getting this and that, you know, and, uh, you know. She wants to leave this world in order. Yeah. And I, to me, that feels morbid to even think about her possessions. Yes, but she's actually thinking about removing the burden from you and whoever else in your family when she's gone. Yeah. She's saying, this is what I want. Yeah. And I don't want you to worry about it. Yeah. And also, she wants you to know that she loves you and that this is what, that these things are meaningful to her and she wants you to have them. That's something that she won't get a chance to say when the time comes. Yeah. And when you just see it on a will, it's like she wants you to know her intent. Right. It's nice. So beautiful, actually. Have you had to deal with uh, like a. a, My mother passed away five and a half years ago. And it was absolutely the hardest thing I've ever been through and continues to be one of the hardest things. And not in a way that like you can't get out of bed in the morning, but just in a way that it's it's sort of a lifelong heartbreak. Yeah. And was there, um, did you do any kind of Jewy ritual around the, her death or, you we know? We sat Shiva and, yeah. um, you know, I, I didn't go to shul, you know, for that month or whatever. I kind of went occasionally or I would go with my father. But I do think Jews do it right. I've been to a lot of, um, not to belittle anyone else's morning rituals. <laughs> you're all doing but, uh, <laughs> If you're not Jewish, sorry. No, but I think that this is one of the places where religious construct is very helpful because it's very hard to know how to heal. And so this idea that there's a timeline, that sort of you do this today, that someone says to you, put one foot in front of the other, and then you're going to sit and you're going to come and you're going to let people come. And part of what happens with Shiva is not just people saying, I'm so sorry, but people recounting great stories about that person's life. And it's really comforting to hear what someone who meant so much to you meant to other people. And I have to say, the thing I found most surprising about grief is that it's totally physical, or it can be. I mean, I think you sort of think, okay, we'll do the Shiva, and then we'll do the thing, and then I'll go back to work, and then and I'll be very sad, but I have to get on with it sort of thing. Um, And what happens is you'll just be at the grocery store or in your car. The the first thing that happens is you reached in your car, you go to call them. 
because that's what you're used to doing. So it's like these sort of, you know, mechanics of your life. And then you have to stop yourself. And so those are the little moments, but you just get punched in the gut by it every once in a while. So the idea that you could uh, just put it aside, it's like, it's never going to work. You have to just go through it. It's It's an endurance test. Yeah. Well, it's funny. The, um, there's a funny story that David Bedil tells about uh, about the Shiva for his mom, um, which we'll have later which in the episode. Wasn't as pleasant. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you be the judge, I guess. Yeah. But no, so I haven't. I haven't really experienced like a Jewish death ritual, and so I, I'm not. I don't feel qualified to say whether it's useful or helpful. But it sounds like it was actually pretty helpful to yeah, you. Yeah, and also. There's enough food and there's enough, you know, people think of everything sort of. But I think the um, the other thing I wanted to say is that that pain, the pain that you, not the pain you can plan for, you know, not the one where you're sort of like, I'm going to go to work. When I get home, I'll take a shower and I'll like cry for 45 minutes and then I'll go for a run. And then, right. I'll, and then I'll meet my friends for dinner. Sure. You know, you're like, I'm sure I can just Squeeze get through the day in. and yeah. do that. Basically, the pain of it, the physical pain of it, I actually found very beautiful because it means that you loved the thing so much that it has caused you physical pain, like the the removal of it from your life. Right. And I think that's kind of a tribute in a way. Part of what this episode is about is that we're that people aren't talking about death in advance you know we have these sort of rituals of dealing with it once it's happened but we haven't we don't really plan for it we don't talk to but your grandmother is well yeah we don't uh, we don't talk to our grandmother i mean i probably wouldn't if i wasn't doing this podcast episode i probably wouldn't have had the conversation that i did with her that that we'll hear later on um and so it was you know it's interesting i think we do you know it is it is the thing that we all have in common. We all are going to die, and yet it's it's it but feels somehow taboo to talk about it, or uh, you know, because because in some ways not talking, in some ways talking about it is extinguishing hope, mm-hmm. and the people that love you want to hope that you'll hang on forever. Yeah, but I also think that not talking about it can cause a great deal of pain for families in the aftermath. Yeah, which is it's so silly and you're talking about stuff or people's wishes or whatever it yeah. is and honoring those wishes and that it's important to have those conversations. And those were conversations I found incredibly difficult to have with my mother and usually tried to end them as quickly as possible when she started them. Yeah. And if I could do it again, I would listen more to what she was trying to stay, say instead of trying to sort of make her feel better in the moment. Cause that wasn't really what she wanted. She wanted to, she took the first difficult step, if that makes any sense. Uh-huh. So you sort of have to like buck up a little and, you know, let yeah. them say what they want. Yeah, no, that's all. But always- it is gen- generally the beginning of the end when they have those guys. It's like anyone who's having that kind of conversation knows they're like, hmm, yeah. the time is nigh. Yeah. Well, and I think it's important to. Though I think it would make me feel better to know that all my business was in order. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, well, yeah, it, to have the luxury to so be able to business. know to to like know that your death is coming rather than have it just you know your life suddenly end, I think, is in a way a luxury, and and you should be able to. Yes, that's the silver of lining of a long illness. Sure, is you can choose how to spend your time. Yeah, um, 
Yeah, there's a whole long story I could go into, but I think we've said Well, enough. I think we've said plenty, haven't we? I know. We? Well, so in this episode- Thank you for listening to the kibitz. <laughs> Please email us your great <laughs> stories about the miserable conversations you had with dying loved ones at kibitzpod, K-I-B-I-T-Z pod at gmail.com. I'm your host, Dan Crane. And I'm Jessica Chaffin. <laughs> All right, in this episode, we are addressing these questions with British comedian David Baddiel, who you might remember from this season's atheism episode. Rabbi Amichai Lau Levy from New York's Lab Shul. Founder of Death Over Dinner and co-founder of Death Over Dinner Jewish Edition, Michael Hebb, as well as my Nana. So, get ready for the episode we know you're all dying to hear. <laughs> the death episode of The, the Kibitz. David Bedil is a writer and comedian who we featured in an earlier episode about Jewish atheism. His one-man show, My Family, Not the Sitcom, will be touring the UK in 2018. In the show, he talks about his mother's lifelong affair with a golf aficionado and his father's dementia, and of course, death. Okay, I am David Bedil. Uh, I am a British comedian and writer. Um, I'm doing a show at the moment in the West End called My Family, Not the Sitcom. You talk about how the dead shouldn't be treated posthumously as if they were saints mm. and that we should, and it's more, it's, it's, it's more of an honor to them and to their memory to, to talk about, you know, talk about them sort of warts and all. Yeah. And do you, so do you think that we have kind of a, a, a misguided sense of, of the dead and, and the way we treat them. Yeah. I mean, it's not a hugely original thought that, I mean, it does drive the show, but I don't think it's a huge original thought. My thought is really that, I mean, it comes from a specific experience as you'll remember in the show, which is being at my mum's funeral and people telling me that she was wonderful and me thinking you didn't really know her. And I mean, specifically about those people, I thought, I don't, I don't know who you are. Who are you? <laughs> right, telling me that my mum was wonderful. I mean, I had a vague sense that because my mum did become quite religious in her last few years, and there were people who knew her from Hatch End Synagogue, where, in fact, rather typically from my mother, she presented an image of herself. My mum was someone who, very unlike me, quite liked an identity that she could put on. So she, towards the end of her life, she sort of gave up her main identity of sort of sex champion golf goddess, although she would sometimes put that back on again if David White sent an email. But that that sort of went for a sort of, you know, oh, pillar of the community, works in the local Jewish charity shop, goes to the synagogue, blah, blah, blah. So that struck me as particularly, therefore, wrong, that idea that, you know, your mum was wonderful, I knew her. Well, no, you didn't. You only knew her for like a few years, and actually, there's this whole other person. But most importantly, yes, there's a kind of propaganda that happens there where people die. We idealise them. You're suddenly not allowed to say anything about them. I mean, that phrase I also say in the show, which is the dead, despite what we might think, are not angels. I mean, actually, uh, for me, I am saying something atheist there, uh, but obviously, it also means something else, which is that if you consider the, if you canonize them or if you etherealize them, then you are doing them a disservice. And actually, empirically, I turn out to be right because it is definitely the case that if you say your mum was wonderful or whatever, you get no sense of who she is whatsoever. Whereas people who go away from this show in which they've heard about her wanking, they've heard about her having an affair, they've heard all sorts of other things that you don't normally hear in the propaganda of death. They come away and they say, I'd love to have met your mum. I feel I have met your mum. You know, 
and that's the that's what I'm doing. I'm I'm trying to keep her actuality alive. Yeah, and my father's in a different way. Well, and uh, you tell a funny story from that from the shiva mm. from her shiva, which I don't know if you if you want to give away. Uh, well, a complicated one to give away. Or just uh, set it up in, in yeah. this in this particular context. Well, okay, look, I'll, I I can I can do it. Uh, it's better in the show, I think, because you have got to know my dad. And the point is that my dad's a suffers from Pick's disease, which is a type of dementia, which uh, involves you. You know, it tends the symptoms include obscenity and swearingness and disinhibition and all that kind of sort of Tourette's kind of Tourette's disorder. It's a frontal lobe dementia. But the comedy with my dad is that he was always like that. He was always the sweariest man in the room, always the angriest man in the room. So it's hard to actually understand that he now had dementia. But actually, this story is something he pro- probably wouldn't have done, um, which is that at the shiver, I'd have to set it up quite so much as I do in the show, but basically there's the line of low chairs, there's a packed living room, rabbi, blah, blah, everyone's in there doing the shiver thing. And then a woman appears and my dad is sitting in the middle of the low chairs. I'm sitting next to him, my brother's sitting next to me. I've never seen him before in my life. Lovely looking middle-aged woman. She comes up and she shakes hands with my brother, says, I wish you long life. Then she moves on to me, says, I wish you long life. And we, me and my brother say, well, thank you very much. And then she says to my dad, I wish you long life. And he says, I wish you would stay behind after everyone else has gone so I can rape you. And... <laughs> uh, <laughs> I talk a lot in the show uh, at that point through the gasps and the shock about how I think that's funny. Um, and it's funny because of the way that all the little niceties that we surround death with are just stripped away by my dad's punk dementia. Um, and But I I think that uh, that is an interesting moment in the show, partly because of the show is also trying to outflank the issues of political correctness that surround comedy. So that's a very sort of acute example of me saying, well, look, here, I'm going to, I'm going to take on those taboos, but I'm also going to do it in a way that involves my dad's dementia. And then it becomes very difficult for you to criticize me for doing that because I own this story. It's my story. It involves me trying to find my way through my dad. I was sitting next to him, you know, who is it who can say that shouldn't be told that story for whatever reasons, political or to do with how we talk about the demen- the people with dementia or the dead. And my, my contention is no, that story should be told. And the primary reason it should be told is because it's funny. And what do you, I mean, what do you think of uh, Shiva as a, as a kind of death ritual? Uh, well, I haven't been to that many. I've been to a couple uh, and I was obviously at my mum's. Um, I think it's all right, actually. Um, I mean, I, we didn't do seven days, of course. Who the fuck does seven days? Uh, but we we did a day. Um, I mean, part of the problem is my dad having dementia. Uh, so you think like, well, either you, you get, gives you two choices. You could shiver forever and he wouldn't notice, or you could not shiver at all and he wouldn't notice. Um, so, you know, and it's supposed to be for him primarily, or at sure. least for the main family mourners. But I suppose, you know, it's quite a nice, I mean, in a way, I really do feel that the show... That uh, I'm doing now is, I mean, obviously it's primarily just a big, complicated but big entertainment for people, and maybe it will make them think a tiny bit as well as laughing. But really, the primary job is for me to tell stories and put people to laugh and to create a different idea of memory. The show is about memory and how you remember people, um, and my, I'm trying to challenge the way that I think people think you should remember people. Um, but I guess therapeutically if you were going to go there you could say the show is a way of processing my mother's death and my and in a slightly small way my father's dementia uh and my mum did die very suddenly and there's no doubt that this show 
doing this show feels like it's a way of keeping her alive or certainly being with her, you know, because it's so true about her, you know, and it so doesn't hold back on who she actually was. So from that point of view, a shiver, which I think is supposed to sort of help you process someone's death and mourn them and bring up memories. It's nothing like as good as this show. <laughs> show is much better. Show is much better. Not that I'm suggesting <laughs> that. any shiver I've ever yeah, not, not, not that I'm suggesting that Jews, all of you, every Jew ever, yeah, who loses someone should do a show like do this. Do a one-man show. Yeah. Do a one-man show in which you talk about your mum's sexuality. I'm not saying that. You should yeah. do that. Well, one of the things about Jews, I mean, lots of Jews are interested in this show. It gets a fairly big Jewish audience. They're not like just Jews, which is good commercially. <laughs> Although having said that, you know, Jackie Mason used to play the West End pack out uh, and that presumably was all Jews. Yeah. Uh, but, but why, I mean, the show obviously does include stuff about Jews, but there seems to be another thing which is just... Jews being interested in that, in memorial, in family, in ritual, in how you deal with death. Um, that seems to be a Jewish thing. I mean, maybe, or maybe other cultures are as well, but it seems to be very Jewish. I don't know. Well, I mean, I think it goes hand in hand with the whole, you know, part of being a Jew is to question everything. Mm. And, you know, I think Catholics, they have, a, you know, it's like you die and then you go to heaven. Yeah. That's there. You're done. That's, yeah. You've got the answer. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, there's no questions asked. Yes. And I think, you know, I think for Jews, it does. It's just another thing that we have, you know, but maybe that's part of what's, what's happening with the shiver or with the show yeah. is that because Jews don't have a very fixed idea of an afterlife, then we have to try and make sense of someone's life in a way that, other religions don't have to quite so much because they just think, well, okay, it's still going on right. somewhere else above the clouds. Down, but yeah. It's fine. Don't have to, we don't have to make sense of it because it's unending. Yeah. But if something is ended, you feel a need to tell the story. Yeah. And Jews are uh, nothing if not good storytellers. Jews are big old storytellers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We have to be. Yeah, I um, guess so. Uh, well, thanks so much for thank you. kibitzing with me. That's, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. You know. I was really interested in this idea that Jews don't have a fixed idea of the afterlife. Has that always been the case? So I turned to a rabbi. Amichai Laolavi runs Lab Shul in New York, an artist-driven, everybody-friendly, God-optional pop-up experimental community for sacred Jewish gatherings based in New York City and reaching the world. When it comes to death, what are Jews meant to believe? Is there, according to the scripture and, and the liturgy and the Torah, is there an afterlife? Is there heaven? Is there hell? What does the Torah say about what happens when we die, at least in the Jewish interpretation? Well, I hate to break your heart, but there's no one consensus on this question. Oh, that's so Jewish. It's, <laughs> it's, exactly, it's exactly Jewish. There are lots of different options of what's going on. Um, because we have developed over centuries and in different civilizations that have influenced who we are. So in the Torah, in the Bible, you've got Canaanite and Semitic and Near Eastern beliefs about the afterlife that depict what people 
and the Sumerian landscape believed about the afterlife. And then you've got Second Temple Judaism and the Talmud that reflects Roman and Greco-Roman and Babylonian visions of how you bury and what happens to the dead. Uh, you've got Moses, who is a response to the Egyptian death culture by having uh, the leader buried in a grave that nobody knows, as opposed to the pyramids. So you've got an evolving sense of how do we deal with death. And in the 21st century, inspired by the Western Christian, by Buddhist, by various discomforts with the body and with death, Jews are also, I think, reinventing our responses to what happens after we die, to how we honor the memory of our beloveds, and how we ourselves get ready to die with less fear and more trust. Um, so the short answer is that there's no one way to let a Jew know what happens the day after. Hmm. There are many different options, and you are invited to uh, craft your own based on the models that we've inherited and that are many. How do you think that the Jewish approach to death, I mean, even though it sounds like it's there's not really a consistent view on this, but in general, how do you think that the Jewish approach to death affects how Jews live their lives, or does it? Um, you know, it is said that, um, I'm, I'm quoting Mordechai Kaplan, that something radical happened in Judaism and in other Western religions when the fear of death and the consequences of the afterlife started shifting in the modern age. It's sort of analogous to the industrial and all the other liberties of, of the modern age. Uh, without the threat of the afterlife, what's going to stop you from doing a lot of horrible shit while alive? And so it takes us away from the pediatric fear of punishment into a more mature adult responsibility for living our lives with integrity and with honesty and with care and compassion here and now. Um, and when you have the Day of Atonement every year, that is a manipulation to say, hey, what if tomorrow is your last day on earth? Forget what happens up above in hell or heaven and the limbo. How do you want to end your life here? What is important? And I find that that annual reminder of mortality is so powerful because it doesn't trouble me about what happens after. It compels me to take what I have here while alive more seriously. That's a really important wake-up call, and that's a very important deadline, which is how I really deal with the, the High Holy Days, an annual rehearsal for your death. Now, I'll share one more thing with you. When my father, who is now dead, and I had this conversation a few years before he died, my father was a Holocaust survivor, who was an Orthodox Jewish man living in Israel, and I asked him, Abba, what do you believe happens after you die? And he basically shrugged and said, oh, who knows? Nobody knows. It doesn't make a difference. You die, you die. Focus on here and now, which... A, was his way of not dealing with mystery and, and theology in two complex ways, but was also a very practical way of like not worried about it, but worried about here and now. Um, all the death rituals from Kaddish to Shiva to how we come together to support the mourners and to grow for mourning, in my opinion, are not so much about the ancient mystical Kabbalistic ways of letting the souls of the dead find comfort above, but they're about letting the souls of the living deal better with the inevitable reality of death and grief. 
So there are tools in our toolbox that are simply about giving us the ability to be very present to whatever life and death brings to us without having to solve the big mystery of what happens once we cross the threshold. We won't know till we get there. It is what it is. Be here now. Live your life fully. Find a way to make meaning of your life. Yeah, and you, I mean, speaking of the tools in the toolbox, you, uh, I read that you've created a sort of a, a virtual space for Kaddish recitation, uh, which I think was after your father's death. What What is that and how does it work and is it still happening? Yeah, it's happening every Thursday at noon uh, Eastern time. And basically, I realized that the Kaddish prayer, again, a metaphor about standing in the presence of mystery, is satisfying to me, but it's about saying it with other people. And I travel a lot. I was in Israel for the month after my dad's death. People were in New York, wanted to be with me. So I just started this weekly Kaddish saying on, on a free conference call for people to share their grief and to chant or listen to this poem that has to do with resilience in the face of tragedy and about hope. So uh, virtual Kaddish happens every week at noon. It led to a monthly Kaddish club. People meet in person in people's homes in New York, in our community. And it's led to a whole bunch of other ways in which we are there for each other to live with the knowledge that there is a shadow looming over us and find ways to support each other. Yeah, that sounds great. And so how, how would you how would one find out more about that? Is that on the Labshul website? Yeah, it's on the Labshul website. Um, and there's information on our Facebook page as well. Uh, every Thursday at noon, virtual Kaddish. And um, I think we're going to make it even of a stronger community uh, beyond New York in the year ahead. So stay tuned for that as well. Great. Well, um, thanks, Amichai, so much for kibitzing with us. And uh I'd encourage everybody to check out Lab Shul in New York. It's uh, from what I've heard, it's amazing. I, again, I haven't had the opportunity, but next time I'm in New York, I would love to pop in. Great. And wet my bed. Rather be dead. Rather be dead. I said dead. I recently got a chance to participate in something called Death Over Dinner. It's very much what it sounds like. It's a conversation about death over dinner. In my case, it was with a bunch of Jews. So, the curriculum, if you could call it that, was taken from Death Over Dinner, Jewish edition. According to the project creators, death is the most important conversation we are not having. It's a really interesting experiment that got me thinking about how I might want my death to go, how I'd want others to think about me when I'm gone, how I want to live my life now, and most of all, what it means to have a good death. So, here's my conversation with Michael Hebb, who has a book coming out soon called Let's Talk About Death. He's Baby. Let's talk about death. You and me. Sorry. That's all right. Uh, <laughs> Michael is the founder of Death Over Dinner and a collaborator in the Death Over Dinner Jewish Edition, which was created along with Sharon Brous, rabbi and founder of ECAR in Los Angeles. And we'll have a special episode with Rabbi Sharon coming out soon. So make sure you check out uh, your feed for that.
Um, my name's Michael Hebb, and I'm the founder of Death Over Dinner, um, Facing Addiction Over Dinner, Earth to Dinner, um, co-founder of Have Dinner with Your Muslim Neighbor, and I work on a variety of projects across a, across a variety of fields. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. why did you, what compelled you to start Death Over Dinner? Death Over Dinner came after many years of, you know, many, many years of trial and error and uh, inquiry into what can happen at the dinner table. And um, pretty much as many wild and absurd dinner parties that you can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, and so how did you adapt it to the, the Jewish edition of Death Over Dinner? Um, at, at this gathering up in the hills in Utah. He's referring to the Reboot Summit, where a group of Jews gather together annually to discuss and debate Jewish tradition and rituals. There is a desire to have a conversation about um, Judaism being Jewish and dying. And um, someone turned to me and asked if I could um, help lead that session because of my experience with death over dinner. Um, and about 40 of us gathered into a room um, including both of the rabbis that were at the gathering, um, Rabbi Sharon Brous and um, Amichai, um, the rabbi from New York. Um, and it was the conversation in many ways was led by the, um, by the rabbis and their desire, specifically Sharon Brous and her desire to have more tools and resources to talk about death when people from her community came to her, um, which was kind of a shock for me in a great way. Um, we assume our rabbis have all of the answers, but we have so successfully um, removed ourselves from death that even our rabbis are asking for resources um, to better serve their community. Um, and so it, the, um, the session went long and it went profoundly deep and it became very clear that um, there could be an entirely new uh, platform, um, a website and movement around a Jewish death for dinner, um, death over dinner, because there was, there, there's so much richness, um, around Jewish story, tradition, ritual, um, philosophy, um, both for preparation, um, and for when somebody's ill, um, when somebody is actually on their deathbed, when someone you know, has died and, and, and thinking about the afterlife. Um, so it, it, it really organically happened that um, at this gathering, at this um, conference, and became very, very clear to us that it needed to be in the world. Um, and, and so it really, the idea has been driving um, the project forward. And, and now I think there's 30 rabbis involved and dozens of community organizations. Wow. And so, how would you say that the Jewish dinners are different? I mean, is there just more fetching? Is the food better? Is the food worse? <laughs> uh, I, think, I think it's still um, it's still unclear. Um, I think that one of the main distinctions is everybody, or the majority of the people at the table, will be Jewish. A uh, Jewish tradition, kind of like a seder, um, and and then a lot of the content um, is informed by Jewish texts. I, the questions are maybe introduced, the conversational prompts are introduced by a short um, bit of Jewish text. Um, the resources um, uh, and, and homework relate to Jewish reading material. 
Um, but we're trying to have a fairly light touch because um, you want to uh, – the core questions that we developed at Death Over Dinner have so much power just in and of themselves. So is the idea in a way that you are kind of preparing yourself for death and, and being able to, to better face it because you've, you've talked about it? Not talking about it and not knowing how to honor your parents or your spouse, and, you know, heaven forbid – um, or the people in your lives, if you don't know what they want, um, or if they don't know what you want at the end of your life, um, there, it's not going to happen. Um, they're not going to accidentally honor you in just the way that you secretly desired. Um, and in so doing one, um, if you're interested in your, you know, your legacy, and being honored in a space, you know, a lot of people like the idea of controlling how things happen, even when they're gone. Yeah. Uh, and if you don't communicate that, it's not going to happen. The other thing is the people that are left behind um, are going to be burdened with the fact that they don't know how to celebrate you or honor you or honor your wishes. And so in the middle of losing um, a person and the devastation and the grief and the chaos that is loss, um, added to that will be not knowing um, how to honor or what the person that I've lost actually would have desired. And you, you interrupt the healing, the healing and grieving process because um, honoring somebody in a way that feels aligned and resonant with who they are um, is a huge part of successfully healing um, and grieving. So there's lots of reasons why I think that just a slight lift in the literacy and the comfort around this conversation has massive outsized benefits culturally. Well, and so, and just uh, tell us about your book really quick. Um, so it'll be called Let's Talk About Death. Um, and what it does, the premise is that the conversation about death um, could and arguably should happen anywhere, not just at the table. Um, so... It, it talks about, um, obviously talks about the death over dinner movement um, and what we've learned from the table, but then gives people um, real tools to spark the conversation. The thing that um, people don't immediately get about death is that it is the best way to understand how you want to live. Thanks for all of your good work in the uh, in the field of death and dying and talking about it. And uh, we will definitely look out for the book. And um, thanks for taking the time to kibitz with us. Absolutely. Thanks, Dan. My Nana just turned 97 years old in September. She and I talked about death back in July when she was a spry 96. In our conversation, she revealed her 101-year-old friend's secret for longevity. There was a song a long time ago called Oh Sweet Mystery of Life. Well, sweet mystery of life is death. Nobody knows what happens. But what I think happens and what I hope happens is that you go to heaven and it's blissful. In heaven, I'll get to see my son, Danny, 
I'll get to see my mom and dad and I can talk to them and tell them all about the, all the children here on earth. And I think it's beautiful up there. There's not a worry. Nobody has to make a living. Everybody's enjoying the beauty of, of the scenery. And it's very blissful. So that's what I think. <laughs> that sounds that sounds nice. It almost it almost sounds better than life. <laughs> yeah. Well, it could be. Oh, and of course, my husband Jimmy, because I sent Jimmy up to heaven in a golden golf cart. <laughs> <laughs> Between me and his life, I think he loved me very much. But I think he loved golf just as much as me. <laughs> I think I think he loved you more than golf, I suspect. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. But anyway, we had a great time together and then unfortunately he lost it all with his mind, went with the disease called Alzheimer's and yeah. just pitiful. People that get it is just awful. Yeah. But, well you're but Jim had it for a long time. Yeah, he did. Yeah, all my friends said, put him in a home, put him in. I said, I'm not putting him in any home. I will not do that. Yeah. And they say, oh, you're so wonderful. And I said, I'm not so wonderful. He would never put me in a home if it happened to me. Yeah. Are you afraid of dying, do you think? Or do you, how do you, how do you feel about it? What do you feel about it? What do I feel about it? Well, I'm, uh -huh. I'm. I'm terrified of dying, but I don't want you to die, obviously. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. But it, it feels very abstract to me. Yeah. yeah. What, what did Schopenhauer say? Life is an uneventful uh, interruption of an otherwise blissful state of non-existence. <laughs> That's life. <laughs> I'm very impressed that you could just. Yeah, he was he was a real downer, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Schopenhauer. I think that's how we will remember him as a real downer. Yeah. 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 But so, what do, do you feel like? Are you are you afraid? Are you? I mean, do you do you fear it, or is it? Or do you feel okay about it? Yeah, I think. You know, sometimes it's people that are in horrible pain and stuff. It's a relief to, to leave the earth and go. You can't handle living. Some people just can't. Yeah. Sometimes, I mean, I it was when Jimmy died. Uh, the nurse, uh, Connie, and one of the nurses from upstairs were here. And he, he was going, and she, so I came in, and I held his hand, and he squeezed my hand so tight that I could hardly release it when he just died. Now, Nana told me that when Pop and Aunt died, they were home, and... Uh, he got, he was feeling terrible and he got up and she, she went to help him and he collapsed in her arms. 
Mm. And he's goodbye and have a nice time to, to Nana. That was what he said? Yeah. Wow. Well, and you've lived a pretty amazing life. You're almost 97. Yeah, I know. Well, you know, you guys may be about a, a living to be 140 or 50 will be old. Wow. I hope not. <laughs> because of medical science. Yeah. If I get rid of Trump and his idiotic idea. <laughs> when I was young, I never thought about dying when I was like your age. We were having so much fun and everything. Yeah. Most people. Do you remember when you first started to think about dying? I never thought about it. I mean, I just thought people got old and died. Yeah. You know, I like I'm just talking to you. This is how, you know, and we heard about people dying. And some of the people I knew, young, younger people were dying of, you know, crazy things. Yeah. Heart, mostly the men were dying of heart attacks because they didn't eat right, you know. And Jewish people died quickly of heart attacks because they were eating schmaltz. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> they were. I know. You know what? Man's eagerness to live outweighs man's eagerness to die. Did you make that up? Yeah, I just made that up. <laughs> you're you're very wise, <laughs> Nana. You were very wise. Yeah. yeah. Well, everybody wants. To, you know, most people don't want to die. I don't want to die either. No. But I, I'm getting close to it, and I keep thinking, "How am I going to die?" I mean, you know. Yeah. What's going to make me stop living? She was having trouble hearing me, so I had to switch recording methods. So, unfortunately, her audio doesn't sound quite as good after this. And you know what's interesting? I've got a friend here, Grace is her name, and she just celebrated 101st birthday. Wow. She's had a, a terrible time for years. She has something wrong with her speech she can't I can't understand the word she says it's really terrible on the phone she's unbelievable at 101 wow she gets she, it's enough already I'm ready to go <laughs> I said don't talk that way because your, your kids and your grandchildren and your great grandchildren will miss you yeah she will, I guess you're right. She always said, I've had enough already. She, every night at 5.30, she has a scotch and water and maybe some chips or some, you know, a guacamole or something with it. And she, you can, she can talk perfectly. Wow. After having the drink, that's the only time I'll call her on the telephone because that's the only time I can understand her. <laughs> she has a real terrible thing something. You know, your, your life lives on communication with people. 
Yeah. With your family, with other people, with on the telephone, it's really terrible. Yeah. Have you thought about drinking scotch now at 5 p.m.? I didn't drink scotch at 1 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, you know, I'm not a drinker. No, I know. I know. But maybe that's I the secret. I don't like it. tastes like cough medicine to me. <laughs> <laughs> so what... What would, uh, do you know what you would like people to say about you at your funeral? Have you thought about that? Uh, well, I don't care what they say, as long as they tell the truth, <laughs> <laughs> what they think. Yeah. Well, I... You know, I don't think I have any mortal enemies. I have never done anything mean, you know, terrible to anybody no you're a you're a great lady i'm sure there will be nothing nothing but great things to say about you well i hope that you say i'm trying to, that i like peace and harmony and making people happy yeah. and having fun and laughing and telling jokes and, and you know sorry to sing me say goodbye to everybody bye Leaving the earth and going to heaven. I know. Well, we will be sorry. Yeah, well, I've lived a long life. So I know. I know. Well, you know, you know what I want to say at your funeral, Nana. Yeah, I'd like to know. I want to say, look, she's moving. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> look, he's moving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what I'd like to say. That was a funny joke. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. All right, uh, Nana. Well, I think I think we're good for the kibitz. So you think we're okay? I think we're. What I said. Yeah, I think we're good. Life is nothing, and I guess death is nothing. Yeah. Everybody that lives has to die, which is crazy. It is crazy. Is the that's the craziest thing about life is knowing that we're gonna we're all gonna die. Yeah. But we try to have a good time and uh, try to and love each other. Enjoy your life. Enjoy your life. It's later than you think. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. It is. That's the best thing because there's days that are happy and days that are sad. You know, with everybody, nobody gets through life. With the perfect life. Yeah. No one. No. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Nana. Good night. I'm glad you're feeling better. All right. Okay, honey. Okay. Thanks, Nana. Talk to you soon. Yeah. Good night. Good night. Love you. You Okay. Bye. Bye. And it wouldn't be right to not end a Nana interview without a joke. So here's another great one. At least she thinks it's great. Marshall lost his wife and he was so sad and upset and they had a big funeral. She was a very prominent person in the community. After the funeral, they all went back to Marsha's house to honor her life. And pay their respects to Moshe. Even the rabbi went. And so they're eating and 
somebody said, where is Moshe? And they said, gee, I haven't seen him. So the rabbi said, I'll, I'll find him. I'll look around the house. So he goes in all, all through the house and the bedrooms and the closets and everything to find Moshe. So he said to himself, I'll go down the basement. Maybe he's down here. He was so upset, poor guy. So he goes down in the basement and he's looking around. He opens the door of a room and there is Marcia in bed with the maid. And he says, Marcia, my God, what are you doing? And Marcia's answer was, in my grief, do I know what I'm doing? <laughs> So, listener, have you thought much about your own death? What do you want people to know about you when you die? Have you picked out the music you want played at your funeral? Have you participated in a death over dinner? Do you have any stories to tell about how you've handled or approached a death in your family, or how you're thinking about your own? If so, please email us at kibitzpod at gmail.com and let us know what you think. We'll read what you have to say on a future episode. And check out deathoverdinnerjewishedition.org to help you gather friends and family to your dinner table and have these very conversations. That is it for this episode of The Kibitz. Thanks to our guests, David Bedil, Amichai Lau-Levy, Michael Hebb, and Dan's legendary Nana. She is a legend. For more about all of these guests including my Nana, please check out our website at kibitzpod.com. And if you like the episode, please review us on iTunes, tell your friends, tweet us at kibitzpod. On uh, Twitter. On, on the Twitters. Yeah. What else? How else would they... Um... Broadcast it from the roof, rooftops. Yeah, shout Sound it. your barbaric yop from the rooftops of the world. <laughs> Walt Whitman. Nice. Well done. Uh, this episode was produced and edited by me, Dan Crane. Special thanks to my co-host, Jessica Chaffin, as well as Adam Sachs, Sarah DeLeo, David Jargowski, Francine Herlin, and Reboot. Our main courtesy is theme... No. Our, our main, main theme <laughs> is courtesy of Nous Non Plus. Uh, merci beaucoup. And as my great-grandmother used to say... That's the way it is in a small town with a large population. Thanks, thanks for, for listening, listening to, to The, the Kibitz. Kibitz.